thank you again very much for your welcome. It's been a joy to share these uh, Tuesdays during Lent as we've been following this series of the parables of Jesus. And as you'll see, today we come not to a parable, but to the narrative of the crucifixion and to this great saying of the Lord Jesus, uh, to, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, over the past, past few weeks, we've been uh, considering the teaching of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke, the only Gentile uh, New Testament writer. And we've been encouraging ourselves to think again about such issues as privilege and position, power and performance, and now at the climax of the Gospel about the future, about what lies ahead, both for Christ as he hangs there on the cross, and for that thief who is being crucified beside him. We've heard Jesus describing the kingdom of God, uh, which he's come to inaugurate through his ministry, through his death on the cross, and through his glorious resurrection. And we've heard him describe how this kingdom has what we've called an upside-down nature to it. It challenges so many of our assumptions and our presuppositions. We've heard the Lord Jesus saying, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We've heard him say, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And elsewhere in Luke, he speaks to us through the lips of Jesus, as he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So the teaching of Jesus Christ cuts across the grain. It is a topsy-turvy kingdom that he comes to establish, where the first will be last and the last first. But it is a kingdom of grace, and that is why it seems so upside down. It is a kingdom of mercy to the undeserving, a kingdom of acceptance for the outcasts. And that's why so many of the unique factors in this Gospel of Luke, in Christ's parables and in his teaching, reflect the bringing in of the outsiders. We have the restoration of the prodigal. We have the acceptance of those who were rejected. The Gospel begins with the announcement to Mary, an insignificant young woman in a despised, nondescript town, Nazareth, that she is going to be the mother of the Son of God. Whoever would have imagined that? Or we have his birth being announced by an angel choir, not to King Herod and his court in Jerusalem, but to shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. The shepherds, the bottom of the pe pecking order socially, but to them the choir comes. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour, he is Christ the Lord. And the ministry of Jesus is full of Christ's grace and mercy to outsiders. Um, Luke alone tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he tells us the story of the ten lepers who were healed, but only one returned to give thanks to the Lord, and he was a Samaritan. The outsiders. Luke alone tells us that Mary of Bethany was allowed to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his words, something which no rabbi would have permitted a woman to do. Only Luke tells us about the women, of whom Mary Magdalene was one, who were with the disciples and who were helping to support them out of their own means. 
So all the time, those who are outside, according to the official policy line, if you like, of Judaism at that time, the sinners, uh, the um, Gentiles, those who had no claim upon God's mercy, they're being brought in. And last time we looked at that parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, The tax collectors certainly outside because of their collaboration with Rome and their exploitation of their own people. But we saw that Christ told us that the tax collector was justified before God as he confessed his sins and cast himself on God's mercy. And the final ministry narrative in this Gospel of Luke concerns another tax collector, Zacchaeus, the man short of stature who climbed up into the sycamore tree to seek Jesus as he passed by in Jericho whose life was transformed by his encounter with Christ. But who could be more outside God's kingly rule, more unworthy of God's mercy and grace, than a criminal who is about to be executed? And that's where we are in today's passage. It's very appropriate for Holy Week, between the events of Palm Sunday glories of Good Friday and of Easter. And the story is so familiar to us in so many ways, but only Luke focuses his lens on one of the two criminals who were crucified either side of Jesus, the dying thief, as he's often called, the ultimate outsider. The issue that precipitates the crucifixion of Christ is that of his identity. And in those opening verses in our passage, which is there on the sheet for us, you'll see that that is what everybody is interested in. He has claimed to be the Christos, the Messiah. Well, if he is going to be the Messiah, will he not demonstrate that in this time of enormous extremity for him? It was common in those days for the charge against the dying man to be displayed on the cross above his head. And the words that were chosen by his Roman judge, Pontius Pilate, were Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In John's Gospel, we're told that the Jewish religious leaders uh, complained about that. They came uh, to Pilate and they said, uh, you should write that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate's famous response, what I have written, I have written. So there it is above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, the trumped-up charge was that he was threatening the kingship of Caesar in occupied Judea, which Pilate saw through but failed to act on because of his fear of the mob. But the religious leaders knew that this was no claim to an earthly kingdom. It was the claim to be the son of the eternal king, the only true and living God. It was the claim to be his Messiah, his Christ, And as Jesus had taught throughout the gospel, he had come to seek and save the lost. So here is the Christ, the Son of God, God's anointed king, on a rescue mission to bring the fallen but human race back into relationship with our creator. So this question at the heart of the Christian faith and at the heart of this narrative is about the identity of Jesus. Is he merely a man? Maybe a great teacher, certainly a wonderful miracle worker, a fine moral exemplar perhaps, or is he who he claimed to be, God incarnate? So it's not surprising 
that the thief addresses Jesus about coming into your kingdom. He will have known about Jesus. He will have heard something, maybe even listened to him in his own life there in Jerusalem. But what he is doing is affirming in talking about the kingdom that he believes that Jesus is more than a man. It's no accident that Luke focuses on this issue as he describes the groups that are watching the crucifixion. There are the people and the rulers. There are the soldiers in verse 36. There are the other criminals in verse 39. And the sneering of the religious leaders focuses on the identity of Jesus. Just in the verse before our passage, they've been saying to one another, if he really is the Messiah, then there's no better time to prove it than now. Let him save himself. And the political aspect of his kingship is mocked by the soldiers there in verse 36. 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Kings don't get put to death like this if they are really kings. And even the criminal believes that if he was the Messiah, he could save himself and them. See that in verse 39? The one who hung there and hurled insults at him, aren't you the Christ? Do something about it. Save yourself and us. And as we come to that point in the narrative, all the evidence seems to point to the denial of his claims. It seems, in the words of Jesus Christ Superstar, that he really is just a jaded, faded Mandarin. He is the ultimate outcast, the ultimate picture of failure. But there is an alternative viewpoint, and the first word of verse 40 alerts us to that, but the irony of the um, taunts and sneers of those around him as he is dying is that if he were to save himself, he could not have been the saviour of others. For it will only be by his atoning death that he will be able to provide the payment of the price for sin and the procurement of a free and full forgiveness. Sometimes the hymns put it very simply and very well, that hymn we remember from childhood, many of us, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. He died that we might be forgiven. And that is what the death of Christ alone can secure. So we come to this exchange with the second criminal. Let's pick it up and read it again from verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. What is it that makes the promise of verse 43 so amazing? What is it that generates that in the response of this dying man to his dying compatriot? Well, first, of course, the thief is confessing that he's guilty. Do you remember how he says, we are being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But beyond death, 
He knows that there is a God to be feared, that there is an ultimate judgment. And while in this life he is being punished justly for his crimes, in his own view, there is a further judgment beyond this life at the judgment throne of God. Secondly, he recognizes that Jesus is suffering innocently. Peter, in his first letter, uh, accentuates this again and again. He says he was the lamb slain for the sins of the world, but he was the lamb without blemish and without spot. He was the innocent sufferer. He bore his sins, in our sins rather, in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, he doesn't deserve to be there. He's worthy to be the king of God's eternal kingdom. And every Jew was looking for that. And so, in this cryptic little account, it seems as though the criminal is recognizing his guilt, recognizing Jesus' innocence, recognizing that this is the death of a king whose kingdom is not of this world, and committing himself to Christ, not just as a king, but as his king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Make me a citizen of your kingdom. Now, we don't know what he thought about that. He may have thought it was very far distant. He may have been taught that at the winding up of human history, an eschatological kingdom would come in and the Messiah would reign over the whole creation. That's probably what he is thinking about. What what he is sure of is that beyond these next few hours in which his death will occur, he's prepared to trust Jesus of Nazareth as his king and to entrust his eternal future into his care. And in the light of that, there is hardly a more wonderful verse in the whole of the New Testament. I tell you the truth. Today, with me in paradise. Think again about paradise. Think of the implications. Paradise, of course, in Jewish thinking, is the beautiful garden. It's what was lost when mankind was evicted from Eden. It's the condition of peace, rest, oneness with God, where God's people enjoy his presence. Immediately beyond this world, in paradise, prior to the resurrection of the last day and the inhabitation of the whole of the new creation. And Jesus says that is where this dying thief will be as a repentant sinner who has cast himself on God's mercy, revealed in Christ that very day, that very moment. The implications are enormous, aren't they? The kingdom of God, then, is a present reality. Not just a future expectation, not just something which will happen at the end of time, but here and now, the kingdom of God, as Jesus says, is among you. And wherever the kingdom is, the citizens of the kingdom recognize Jesus as their king. And the way in for the criminal, as for every human being, is by an acknowledgement that we have no worthiness, no guilt, no, no uh, right to be there. We recognize our guilt. But faith that Jesus is the Christ. He is the King. He is the Lord. And it's significant, isn't it, that the criminal could not be baptized. 
the criminal could not produce any record of a reformed life. He did nothing to earn his eternal salvation. He simply cried out to King Jesus for mercy and grace. And he receives that strong affirmation, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It reminds us, doesn't it, that heaven is not for good people. If heaven were for good people, it would be unpopulated. For who is good enough for God? This is a wonderful story because it shows us that heaven is for forgiven people. And it is by that sacrificial atoning death that was taking place at this very moment in human history, in time and space, that Friday afternoon outside Jerusalem. It is there that the sin of the world is carried by the ultimate outsider, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And that sacrificial death means that the assurance the thief was given is given to all who follow in his footsteps, that our guilt is purged, that the kingdom of God is open to all who will believe, that there is forgiveness for all who will come seeking it. During one of his uh, many missions around the country, John Wesley tells how he was met by General Oglethorpe who objected to him preaching the free grace of God in the gospel and the forgiveness that comes to those who turn and trust in Christ. And the general said, Mr. Wesley, I never forgive. To which Wesley's response was, then, sir, I hope you will never sin. Because if there is sin, there is always a need of forgiveness. We know that's true in human relationships. How much more true in our relationship with God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here is our place with this dying thief saying, Lord, remember me. So on Friday we shall have the opportunity once again to take our place at the cross of Jesus. And our attitude to that unique death of that unique man will determine our own eternal future just as it did that of the criminal with his dying breath. Paradise is a reality. It is the waiting place for the fullness of the new creation. The kingdom of God is here and now. And as we become members of it in this life, we know that there will be no barrier to our membership in the next life. But the way is open for whosoever will to come. And so as we close, let me leave you with that very important verse, 45, just at the end of the passage. As Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What an amazing thing to have happened. The curtain of the temple, of course, is the veil that shields the holiest place of all, the Holy of Holies, as it was called, from everyone. Only the high priest can go through that veil. Only he can go through once a year to make atonement for the sins of the nation. It's as though God provides that place of atonement and forgiveness. But there's a curtain that says you can come near but not that near. You can't come any nearer. There's always a barrier. 
But as Jesus dies, commending himself to his Father, dying that atoning death as the Lamb of God, the curtain is torn in two. One of the other Gospels tells us from the top to the bottom. In other words, God wrenches it down. The barrier is removed by the hand of God. And he says to all the world, through the death of Christ, you can come in now. There is no barrier. This is the glory of Good Friday. And as we consider his resurrection on Easter morning and rejoice that the Christ who died for our sins is raised again for our justification, that is the glory of the gospel. That is the assurance that we have for a lost and broken world. That is what can transform individual experience and communities by this amazing love of Christ that reaches out to all the outsiders and offers to each of us who will humble ourselves before him entrance into his eternal kingdom, the assurance of sins forgiven, peace and acceptance with God, which comes to all who turn to him and trust him. Today, with me, in paradise. So as we think again about that, let's put our faith in that living Saviour, and experience his promise of forgiveness and of life everlasting. Let's pray together. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Our gracious Father, we thank you that the Christ who descended into our world and became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him was raised by the power of your mighty hand, given that eternal life which he shares with us as we enter into the experience of being raised with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenlies and sharing the very life of Christ here and now and for all eternity. So we thank you that this world is not the end. We thank you for the eternal perspective that you give us so clearly throughout the Bible. And we thank you for this amazing climax to the gospel, that no one need be outside the reconciling love and mercy of God. Help us, Lord, to believe that. Help us to share it with others. May our lives reflect its reality as we give you our thanks and praise for such a great salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.